Rishi Betty. Thank you very much for coming in, Rishi. Happy to be here. It's good to see you. Um, so maybe we could begin the episode talking a little bit about what you're doing right now. I guess you're, you're home for Thanksgiving and staying a little bit longer before you fly back out to California. But I'd love to know just a little bit about what you're, what you're doing professionally right now and uh, some of the research that you're, that you're doing. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm right now working on a biotech startup in cancer immunotherapy. Um, so just to zoom out a little bit, a little bit of context of the field, um, last 15 years have been really exciting in oncology and in immuno-oncology specifically. And that's the field of using the immune system to combat cancer, as opposed to more traditional approaches like chemotherapy, where you are directly killing cancer cells. The objective in immunotherapy is to train and help the body's natural immune system to counteract um, a cancer. And the immune system is quite good at this. It's one of its critical functions in the body. Uh, but of course, in order for a cancer to form, it uh, uses a arsenal of methods at its disposal to break down the immune system's ability to do that and prevent the immune system from performing its natural um, surveillance and elimination function of cancerous cells. The excitement about 15 years ago was the realization that we can inhibit particular mechanisms that tumors use to shut down the immune system. And by blocking those, we can essentially re release the brakes and allow the immune system to do its natural job of fighting off cancerous cells. And what this meant clinically in some cancer types was huge. There were diseases like metastatic melanoma at first, and then others like metastatic lung cancer, which prior to immunotherapy were just extremely difficult to treat and had a very poor prognosis in virtually all patients. And these are still very challenging diseases, but particular immunotherapy drugs um, about 10 to 15 years ago started to show enormous promise in their ability to, to treat these diseases, which were before just you know, extremely low survival rates, even, even five years out. So that really opened up a new sort of direction of hope in the field, um, where it was now clear that in the right conditions, the body's immune system could be very effectively trained to fight off cancerous cells, even very difficult late-stage diseases like metastatic melanoma and lung cancer. The flip side, though, is that not all patients and not all tumor types have proven to be as responsive to this new paradigm of immunotherapy. Um, there are other diseases like MSS colorectal cancer, um, where you know there are other therapies, of course, there are chemotherapeutic approaches, there are other targeted therapies, but immunotherapy and this idea of unlocking the immune system's ability to fight off the cancerous cells has just, for whatever set of reasons, not been as effective. So we, and of course, many others in the field have been focused on trying to understand why this is and how we might design the next generation of immunotherapeutic strategies to unlock the kind of successes that we've seen in melanoma, lung, and others for the diseases and for the patients who have still not benefited from immunotherapy. So at a super high level, that's our objective. Um, and we, of course, have some particular theses as to why that's the case. And from those theses have designed multifunctional molecules that we hope uh, can, can address this, this unmet need. Hmm. 
So what are you um, what are you using to collect it? Are you you're using mice, right, to to test and collect data on this for the different cancers? Yeah. So there's sort of a a a, a lengthy uh, discovery and development process of which murine models mice are, are absolutely a crucial component. Um, it's really a combination of things. You know, we start with a deep understanding from the literature and the immense body of knowledge that's been accumulated about immunology and oncology. And we couple that with data-driven approaches uh, using AI machine learning techniques on the large clinical data sets which have now been created um, in order to validate some of those hypotheses and ask the question, you know, if we think a given target or a given set of targets in a given disease is important, can we use computational approaches to back that up from actual clinical data and support the idea, for example, that maybe non-responding patients have dysfunction in a particular pathway or in a particular target that we're interested in. Um, so we generate hypotheses from the literature. We use computational approaches to kind of pressure test and validate those hypotheses. And then, of course, once we have a therapeutic a candidate, um, using in vitro and in vivo models like mice are a crucial part of uh, validating that we can perturb and counteract these, these problems that we believe we have identified. So um, there's kind of a, a, a multi-step process for us to build confidence. And it's a confluence of belief from the literature and the vast amount of work that you know the field has done, mm-hmm. our own computational analyses, from clinical data to sort of support and pressure test those hypotheses. And then thirdly, of course, internally generated data ourselves, um, where using both in vitro and in vivo systems, we, we evaluate, you know, can we counteract these mechanisms in the way that we think? Excellent. That's really cool. I'm, I'm trying to visualize just the process of immunotherapy and like on a, you know, say someone has lung cancer, how this technology actually works, maybe at a, sure. at a more... Um, specific or minute level. Great. So maybe I'll start by explaining how, you know, the current generation of immunotherapies works and then transition into how how what we're doing is um, different or Mm -hmm. building on that. Um, So in order for a cancerous cell to become a cancerous cell, kind of by definition, it has to acquire the ability to have unrestrained growth and proliferation. It has to evade the natural checkpoints and the natural um, constraints that are, that are placed on cellular division um, in order to become a cancer. This has been understood for, for several decades now. Uh, what also is clear is that it must evolve particular traits that allow it to shut down the immune system. So the immune system can't come and eliminate the cancerous cell that it detects. Uh, one such a mechanism that cancer cells are able to use is expressing a ligand, which means a molecule on the surface of a, a cancer cell. Um, in this case, PDL1 is the name of the ligand. Um, that can then bind a receptor on an immune cell, like a T cell, whose job it is to identify and eliminate a cancer cell. And when the PDL1 on the surface of the cancer cell binds the receptor PD1 on the surface of the immune cell, it essentially shuts the immune cell down and prevents it from executing its natural functions. Um, it's directly suppressing the ability of that immune cell to uh, do its job. Uh, you can think of it as a break that the tumor is placing onto the immune system. 
So this you know, first wave of very successful immunotherapies, they're antibodies, so proteins that um, are able to interfere with this interaction. So if you administer um, to a patient this protein that blocks the interaction of PD-1, the receptor, to PD-L1, the ligand, you're now preventing the cancer cell from being able to suppress the immune cell. It's like you're taking the brakes off. Got it. And um, this works quite well in the diseases that I, that I described. Now the immune cell no longer has the brakes on. It's able to do its natural functions of de detecting and eliminating the cancerous cell. Hmm. Um, does that kind of make sense? Yes. Yep. Cool. So you're taking the brakes off, but do the immunes, does the immune system have to be empowered to defeat the cancer or does it just do it naturally? It's a phenomenal question that segs perfectly into what we're doing that builds on this, you know, a very successful break removal approach. So the immune system is naturally very good at detecting things that are different from self. Right? That's how it's able to identify and eliminate viruses and bacteria and other pathogens in your body. Cancer is also different from self, right? Again, kind of definitionally, cancer cells have acquired a set of mutations that make them different and thus recognizable as distinct from the healthy self cells that make up the rest of your body. So the immune system is naturally very good at seeking out and recognizing this is different, this is not self. But you're absolutely right that there are some immune cells that are naturally able, when they recognize this non-self, to go kill, eliminate. But there are other types of immune cells that don't do that naturally. Instead, they might suppress the immune system, or even worse, they might do things that help the cancer cells grow. So what we believe, and you know, a, a lot of folks in the field have come to believe, is it's not enough to just remove the breaks you also have to control the type of immune cell you have, the phenotype of immune cell, to make sure that it is a anti-tumoral T cell executing tumor cell killing functions, mm. as opposed to immunosuppressive, or in the worst case, tumor promoting functions. Um, so the sort of short answer to your question is, there are many different phenotypic states that an immune cell can take on, um, and what we're focused on doing, in addition to removing the brakes, is controlling the kind of immune cell you have and trying to direct it towards a path where it is anti-tumoral um, and performing that desired function as opposed to the other counterproductive states that an immune cell might be in. So that's a different layer. So is that, like, is that in your, is that something that you think about every day is like helping the immune cells empowering them and overtaking the cancer cells or is it just kind of putting the brakes on the cancer cells and, and preventing them from spreading further it's more the former it's 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 thinking about how we can alter the microenvironment in the tumor to force the immune cells that are there to adopt the right phenotype and the right state both removing the brakes but also steering them in the right direction so they're taking on the right anti-tumoral state as opposed to one of their other unproductive states Gotcha. Okay. Um, how did you get into this, Rishi? I'm, I'm curious because you would think that, you know, to go down this path, you would need a medical degree. I know you studied biology a little bit in school, but I, I would love to know a little bit more about your journey into this, you know, life-saving profession, ultimately, hopefully, one day. Yeah, of course, that's, you know, <laughs> that's the dream. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, I trained as a computer scientist, um, also, you know, delved into biology some and was always interested in how computational approaches and engineering could be applied to the field of biology. Um, both my parents are physicians, kind of grew up with a lot of uh, shop talk around the house and was always interested in that. Um, my father is an oncologist and spent uh, the better part of his career um, in academia focused on these kinds of questions of, you know, how do we eliminate cancer cells? How can we better train the immune system to eliminate the cancer cells? And a few years ago, you know, we started working together, um, you know, first kind of on the side for me um, and a little bit on the side for him as well. He was a full-time academic. Um, but it became clear that some of these ideas would be better served, spun out of academia. It was clear that there were things that we wanted to advance into the clinic and wanted to, you know, take that journey on. Um, so we sort of started working together on the startup, um, both of us kind of, again, on the side at first, but over time it picked up momentum and uh, we realized that we wanted to work on it full time. Um, so I, you know, left my other job in biotech to focus on, on our company, Y-Trap full time. Um, and he also um, is working full time now, having left academia and full time focused on Y-Trap. Um, so it, it was kind of a, a, a slow journey where uh, I'd been working with him for a while, collaborating on these ideas, you know, him obviously bringing a wealth of expertise in oncology and immuno-oncology, um, and me being interested in, you know, how do we engineer these molecules? How can we use computational approaches both to identify the right targets and then to design and validate the constructs that we're making? And that was kind of the birth of the partnership, and it's been really fun. Is he out in California with you too, or is he here in Baltimore? No, he's still based here in, in Baltimore. Gotcha. So a lot of Zoom for both of us, but, you know, we also do a lot of travel back and forth. And for me, any visit home, you know, it's kind of nice. Yeah. I get to stay a little longer, get some work done too. Um, it's been really fun. So I'm, I teach a leadership and character class here at Gilman for Seniors. And the book that we're reading right now um, is very much related to our conversation, When Breath Becomes Air. Mm. Um, you know, and I just find, whereas you are really fascinated by the intersection of medicine and computation, I'm interested in intersection of English and medicine, just like this writer Paul Kalanithi is in the in the book. Um, and I think it's such a powerful book for students to read because not only is it great writing, you know, the guy's a magician with words, but he's also bringing that whole wealth of um, medical language. And he puts it in a way, just as you have in this conversation, that, that you can understand what he was going through. And it builds throughout his career in medicine before he got sick himself. But, um, but I've just found it so powerful for my students and, you know, personally too. I love that book. I think he's a phenomenal writer. I think it, it brought me to tears when I was reading it, but it was also just such powerful writing and such a beautiful encapsulation of, you know, everything that he personally went through, but also everything that he aspired to do as a researcher and as a clinician. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely incredible writing and he was clearly an incredible human being. Did you know that you wanted to go down this path maybe when you were a student at Gilman or was it something that you discovered in college? Yeah, um, I think, I, you know, I was always interested in biology and medicine. I was probably more day-to-day -day interested in computers and uh, programming. So when it came time to put together college essays, you know, and think about, you know, what I wanted to do, I kind of had this vision of, you know, I'm going to work on computational approaches in biomedicine and kind of 
made some stuff up to that effect. You know, of course, I was a teen-year-old high school student. I didn't really know what that meant or what form that would take, but it, but it sounded appealing, and it, it, it seemed like something that brought together the things that I was interested in and the things I was passionate about in some sort of productive intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be clear, I didn't really know what it meant, right? It was, it was um, hard, hard to actually put it to practice and, and understand what the day-to-day or what the specific work or contributions would be like. Um, then when I went to Stanford, you know, I was very lucky to find mentors who were living that intersection and, you know, had really um, believed that there was productive work to be done at the intersection of computation and biomedicine and even more specifically drug discovery and drug development. Um, so getting to spend time and having some formative research experiences with folks like that who were really bona fide um, computationalists in the field. Um, made me really excited about the specifics and it made me realize that, you know, the kind of hazy picture that I was sketching out, in fact, was 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 more true than not. And that actually was what I wanted to to do and, and, and was a really interesting place to be. Um, there was also a ton of excitement happening in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning at the time, which, of course, has carried on until now and only escalated. So it also felt like, you know, we were at a frontier of new abilities in discovery and um, it felt very optimistic and it continues to feel very optimistic as more and more tools become added to our arsenal, uh, both in terms of what we understand on the basic science side, but then also on the engineering side, the tools we now have to manipulate and exploit these insights for therapeutic benefit. Yeah, so that's that's another topic I wanna get into because you know something that's been on my mind a lot is artificial intelligence in schools and education how it's such a helpful tool, but it's also, you know, if used improperly, I've got some, you know, plagiarism on my student essays, but AI is, you know, it's really changing the world in a lot of ways. And I want to know where you use AI, where you see it and what, you know, the field of cancer research looks like in the future with AI as a helpful tool. Yeah. I mean, there, there's obviously, you know, uh, hundred answers to that question that can, you know, sort of share some initial thoughts, then we can, we can riff on that. Um, on a day-to-day level, you know, just as sort of a, a person in the world, um, I've already found, you know, using tools like ChatGPT and others to, to be immensely useful for increasing productivity. Um, things like just writing code, doing data analysis, or trying to answer questions and not, not understanding how something works. It's, it's, pretty phenomenal that we're already at a place you know, n- not long after these methods were initially developed, where at least I've felt a, a day-to-day a benefit um, and quite substantial in some cases from, from being able to have tools like that at my disposal. And I think that's the kind of thing that's only been kind of become more and more rampant in essentially every field. There's you know, nothing specific about the, the way that someone like me is using it that, that won't eventually impact every profession. Um, even more than it already has. Um, more specifically to cancer research, I think there are a number of ways that these techniques are, are already having significant impact and will continue to. Um, so like I mentioned, one major aspect is how we can use these tools to engineer better molecules and do it more quickly than before. Um, we're already there uh, using machine learning and AI tooling and new approaches to design better constructs that have more desirable properties as drugs, are more potent, are more specific. 
um, you know, there are already a wealth of tools and more coming out every week that are able to help us accelerate that process. So, you know, that's something that's only going to become more and more dramatic over time. And the sort of ceiling for what kinds of engineering problems we can solve with these approaches mm -hmm. is quickly, quickly going up. Um, but, you know, we don't need to wait to start using those. And indeed, we, we already do. Um, on the discovery side, as you're thinking about, you know, what are the right targets? How do we understand the disease better? Um, computational tools, for sure, have already become quite useful in making sense of the large data sets that we generate from, you know, clinical data or in vitro data. Across the board, we can we can really use computational tools to make sense of the data. I think there is a future where, you know, we're able to use AI-based systems to even go a step further and help us generate scientific hypotheses and really interpret and manage the complexity of the literature, integrate that with novel data sets, and really help us wrap our head around what are very complex systems. Um, I think we're not there yet for scientific discovery. I think right now it's still very much systems assisting the human, um, you know, and making our thinking and our systematization and organization of data more efficient. But I think there could very well be a future where, where these systems are able to make better sense of the complex, heterogeneous knowledge available to us than a single human is, is, is able to. And, you know, how long that takes is, you know, anyone's guess. But, but there certainly seems to be a path in that, in that direction. And that's longer term, but, but also very exciting. Yeah, I think efficiency is the word with artificial intelligence because, you know, I, I think it shaves off so much time that it would take a person in the medical field and education and law to go do research on something, look it up, read through the documents, read through the papers, draw conclusions, right? It does it in, in seconds. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's changing everything. I mean, it's just very hard here at Gilman as a teacher to understand our role as teachers and you know, the right way to use it and to teach students how to use it. Because when they go out in the world, you know, and they go to Stanford, when they join your company, when they go into law, when they go into government, they're going to use ChatGPT and BARD and all kinds of artificial intelligence. And um, it just, it's just, we're at a really interesting moment, I think, in history right now. Yeah, I think, you know, I, 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 I honestly think you must have an incredibly difficult job right now. Um, you know, i Personally, one of the things I loved most about Gilman was the amount that the school forced us to write and write in many different ways. One of my fondest uh, uh, memories of English class was an assignment in Mr. Gaby's eighth grade class where we had to write a poetry um, in the style of Shakespeare. And I remember thinking it was so fun. And it was such a you know different way to exercise my brain than I had normally been used to, even within the context of writing. And, you know, forcing yourself to be able to have creativity within the sort of within the box of the rules of Shakespearean writing mm -hmm. is just a cool exercise and it's kind of fun to stretch your brain that way and try to be creative and expressive you know in a in a in a fairly constrained style and it just you know really stood out to me when it juxtaposed with the initial demonstrations of ChatGPT on Twitter about a year ago. You know, one of the coolest things was telling it to write a poem about some random topic right. in a specific style. And the ease with which it generated that poetry was one, both remarkable for anyone who's ever tried to write a poem, but two, it also made me feel like, wow, like how, how are we gonna convince kids that this is still worth doing? Mm -hmm. um, 
because I do feel that exercises like that make, or at least made me a, a better communicator and a, a better writer. Um, so it's, it's, it's super hard for me to wrap my head around, given the prevalence of these kinds of almost magical tools, how do we still convince and motivate kids to do the work right. and, and sort of acquire those skills for themselves? Right. I think the, uh, the, the moment where you're staring at a blank Microsoft Word document or Google Docs and it's, you know, the ideas are not coming and you're hitting writer's block and then you go for a run, you come back, you're in the shower and you're like, oh, I've got a good idea. That epiphany moment for whatever field you're in, for better or worse, right, that epiphany moment is taken away, I think, a little bit by the artificial intelligence because it's like when writer block, writer's block hits, why wouldn't you use the tool? It's like the internet. Um, and in some ways, that's great because it means people will have a writer's block less. Right. But does this mean that people won't learn to overcome it without that? And I don't know. I guess it's 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 easy to kind of sound like a to sound like a luddite talking about this, but it does worry me a little bit. And I think we have to figure out, you know, how to how to still make sure people are excited about learning how to communicate. Yeah. Uh, but the, also take advantage of this phenomenal tool that's available to us. Yeah. There's two sides to it: the joy of learning and also efficiency. So, really interesting stuff. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your experience here at Gilman. You'd mentioned your eighth grade class writing Shakespeare, but what else do you think it was about Gilman? Did you go here since pre-K? Were you? It's a twelve-year man. You're twelve-year man. Through twelve. Nice. Yeah, it's a what, good time. What else about your experience here, you know, really impacted you as you left, went to Stanford? Now you're out in the world, living in San San Francisco or Palo Alto. I'm in Menlo Park. So Menlo Park, a little bit south. Of a bit north of uh, Palo Alto. Uh, yeah, you know, Gilman was 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 great for me. Um, I think all you know classes where we read and wrote and thought, you know, English, history, a foreign language. I you know I think there's just so much that I took away from becoming a better communicator um, in those classes that that absolutely has stuck with me certainly throughout college and certainly after that. Um, I think we, you know, I, obviously I, I, um, I took a lot of non-humanities classes in college, but uh, I felt, you know, incredibly well prepared for the humanities classes that I did take. I did a history minor and really enjoyed it and, you know, felt like the things we were reading at Gilman and the, the, the material we were expected to produce was very much at the level of, you know, uh, what I was expected to produce in college, so it was, it was it was absolutely great from that perspective. Um, I think I also got a lot out of a number of extracurriculars that Gilman offered, and had a had a ton of fun doing. Um, the news was was an incredible experience. It was it was great to you know have that opportunity to 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 write and think and banter with you know everyone else who was interested in the similar things and faculty who were interested in those things. Um, yeah, uh, Dr. Kelly and Ms. Fuller and Mr. Perkins. You know, it was it was it was a great group of both faculty and students who 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 got together pretty frequently to argue and debate about things in the world. And I think that was a that was a pretty uh, impactful experience. Um, I've mentioned this to other folks at, at Gilman recently as well, but I also, uh, in retrospect, got a ton out of being forced to, to do some things that maybe were not in my wheelhouse, like running cross country uh, <laughs> with a coach Duncan, you know, uh, not something I think I was super cut out for. 
uh, and certainly had a lot of second thoughts while doing, but in retrospect, just was immensely valuable for me in terms of building confidence and having some physical abilities. And I've definitely drawn on that um, in the years since when you know, I, I go out for a run, I go for a bike ride. Um, so yeah, I think the whole spectrum of, of things that Gilman had to offer from some of the more curricular pieces to extracurricular things like the news that I kind of knew I was excited about, but also things that, you know, maybe I was a little reluctant to do, but was pushed into anyway, or were, were all in a retrospect, incredibly valuable. Well, I love, uh, you know, as an English and history teacher, I love how your first response to that question was about the humanities, because I think, you know, because science and biology and math so much of the world runs on numbers, right? It's very easy to say, oh, what do I need to read this book for Mr. Scott's class? Or why do I need to know about early America in history with Mr. Scott? But I think, you know, obviously I'm a huge um, advocate for the humanities and I appreciate that you are in, you know, the medical and startup field and you're talking about the importance of reading and learning history while you were a student here. Yeah, absolutely. I think those things are hugely important. And some of, the, I mean, I obviously also valued my math and science classes here, and they gave me the foundation needed to, you know, continue to learn a math and science um, afterwards, which is what I use on a on a day to day basis uh, at work more. But um, I think the humanities classes were super important and definitely stuck with me, both in terms of skills, but also just the joy of reading and learning stuff. So, what was Stanford like for you? Did you enjoy your experience there? Loved it. It's great. A great place, great people, um, huge diversity of interests, but definitely a nexus in you know tech, computer science. Uh, so su- super fun to find you know more of those people than maybe there were at at um, Gilman, and really surround myself with folks who were excited about the newest advances in, in computer science and building startups and all of all of all of those things. Um, uh, yeah, just a really, really a good group of people and a lot of opportunities to do things that fell within my curricular interests. Um, great research opportunities um, and sort of broadened my horizons in terms of what we could do with the kinds of things that I was learning in, in, in class and was lucky to, to be able to take advantage of some of those. Looking back, is there a favorite class or professor that you had there that really impacted you in your professional life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there were a there were a, a a number of classes that have just been things that were very helpful to learn, which I concretely use on a day to day basis. Yeah. Um, I uh, yeah. I mean, there were there, there were a number of the computer science classes on the humanities side. I was lucky to take a, a bunch of classes with Professor Tom Mullaney, uh, History of Modern China, a really cool class called History of Information, hmm. uh, which was as much about sort of concretely the history of information and how we think about that as a concept. But it was sort of equally a historiography class and understanding, you know, the intrinsic bias of every source, which I feel like is something that, you know, you start learning in your almost in your first history classes as a middle school student or maybe even as an elementary school student. It was just such a rich idea and there's so much to unpack there. It was it was cool to, you know, continue to have that kind of a discussion at a at a college history class level where we were going and doing archival research for our research projects and trying to understand, you know, how to interpret a source and and, and what to make of these primary documents that we were looking at. Um, super interesting. Yeah, I think that I was actually just talking about this the other day with 
a professor that we had on the podcast, but I think looking at a source and recognizing the bias and the and the position and the person who wrote it and when they wrote it, I think it's one of the most important skills in our age to have because you've you have so much information coming at you at once, and if you don't have the ability to comb through it and understand what's truth versus BS is, you know, it's such a important skill in the world. I agree. And I think it's equally important in science. And, you know, I spend a lot of time reading papers. That's, you know, a major part, I think, of, of any any scientific endeavor. And, you know, obviously the sort of particulars and the things you're looking at and maybe the signs are different, but the underlying exercise of trying to take a noisy source and identify what is true and real about it is sort of a consistent endeavor regardless of the application or the field. I think that's another reason to be be wary of, you know, at least for, for me and my realm of, of artificial intelligence, when the things that it produces sometimes are not actually always accurate. Like you could ask, hey, you know, write me a paper on Huckleberry Finn, you know, and there's a paragraph with a quotation in it that's not actually from the book. And if you don't know that, if you haven't read the book and you're just using this as a source for your paper, um, I think I think that's why you have to learn a little bit about how to comb through AI-generated sources before you can really use it in a, I guess, a smart way. Um, sure. Yeah, I think uh, what you're describing is the tendency of these models to sometimes hallucinate facts. And and that's certainly something that you see in, in many models now. But I also think there's a ton of technical work being done to mitigate those concerns. And um, I think this is certainly an issue right now, but it strikes me as something that we are... We are when I say we, I, I don't mean us, I mean the field is sort of well-poised to address. And, and I think uh, we're in the very early days of these large generative models. And um, there is, you know, so much work being done, it's hard to keep up with the sort of rapidity of research. But I think I, I would be I would be surprised if a year or two from now, um, we're even nearly as worried about hallucinating facts. I think there's... there's a, it's an easy there's, bug to fix. I don't know if it's an easy bug to fix. I, I just think there's there's it's just so early days and and there's so much work being done that is promising. Is that it's it's just very likely that we're going to make huge gains um, on those capabilities. I think there's an underlying concern which sort of remains true, which is using approaches like this for disinformation and not for sort of accidental hallucination, but for deliberate manipulation of the reader. And moreover, hyper-personalized deliberate manipulation of the reader, because the marginal cost of generating another word or another page is being rapidly driven to zero. So in that situation, um, how do we as a society uh, reckon with the essentially infinite availability of custom-tailored arguments to convince individual people? of things mm -hmm. um, when the sort of bearers of those arguments may have different interests than the common good of society. Um, and that's a super challenging question that I think will rely, you know, not ex certainly not exclusively on technical solutions, but, but, but also on, on sociopolitical ones. Um, so let me ask you, and this, this is two questions, but, you know, it, it might be interesting to hear your opinion on this from somebody who's using AI often. Um, one is, what do you think this technology will look at? What will look like in one year or five years? And then the other question is, if you were a teacher here at Gilman, like how would you think about educating students to use 
this tool or what's what do you think is a smart way of integrating AI into learning at Gilman? Those are both huge questions. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we start with the first. Um, the rapid pace of capabilities acceleration makes it very hard to predict what the models are going to be capable of in a year or five. Uh, but what certainly seems to be true is they will continue to get the better at tasks that we've traditionally considered to be very challenging. And I think optimistically, um, the most exciting path for one, five, how many ever years in the future is one where uh, these models are able to synthesize scientific insights that are surprising to humans, right? And and in some ways, you know, it's cool to see the models being able to do things that humans can do. And that's obviously useful and that, that maybe can be used to make people and processes more efficient. But thinking about it scientifically from the perspective of cancer research or any other scientific field, um, I think it'll be an, an entirely new, crazy world when we have systems that are that are reliably generating scientific insights that are surprising to us and advance our understanding of a, of a, of a given field and at the very least our novel hypotheses to go chase. Um, and that's something that, you know, I feel a lot of folks are working on and it's, it's sort of uh, reasonable to expect that we'll make progress in that direction. Um, as to how to integrate it into education at Gilman, that's a, it's a super interesting question. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it too. Um, I think it is, it, you know, perhaps just to start by stating the obvious, we can't pretend that these tools don't exist. Right. You know, it's like it, if it's like kind of like the calculator was 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 invented, and we pretend that there's no calculator in math class. It's just it's just not true. You gotta hand, <laughs> hand write your test. No graphing calculators. Right. Yeah. So. On one level, I think teaching folks to be illiterate and you know productive consumers of this technology is useful. Um, in terms of you know how to encourage students to continue to develop the skills that these models may appear to obviate, I don't know. I, I think that's a that's a that's a huge question, and and I, I wouldn't pretend to have the answer, um, except for you know sharing my uh, belief that it is and will continue to be valuable to learn how to be an effective communicator and that it is unreasonable to expect that sort of need to be completely obviated by the existence of even very intelligent AI systems. Yeah, I think ultimately you are going to in life have to talk to somebody you've got to relay your ideas to a person you've got to be persuasive you have to stand up in front of somebody and be authentic or else they're going to blow you off right so uh, i think all of the base level foundational skills of the humanities you know i think it's a different conversation for the math and sciences because in my opinion and i'm not in the math and sciences but why wouldn't you use the the tools at your disposal and why wouldn't you learn how to use them but uh, in the humanities, life is about authenticity and communication and selling and persuading others. And if you don't have the, the foundations of those skills, which comes with sitting in front of a blank screen and figuring out your thesis statement and not relying on the computer to do it for you, I think you're actually going to be behind in life, even though that sure. ten temptation is, 
is there and it's efficient, right? So yeah, it's interesting. I think in the math and sciences, it's actually, in some senses, easier to think about how these uh, technologies will be incredibly useful. Uh, if you think about them as an infinitely patient and individually tailored teacher, that just sounds like the dream. You know, if there's a mathematical or scientific concept you don't understand, um, you're no longer bottlenecked by the time of an individual human teacher. Um, if there's something that you need a lot of attention to understand and you want to ask a thousand follow-up questions, for most topics, certainly at the you know high school level, um, these models are already at a capacity to give you very personal, tailored attention to understand. And you know, when I mentioned that I use these things every day, that's something that I've absolutely made use of. Is if there's a scientific concept I don't understand or a mathematical concept I don't understand, uh, I can just keep asking the model questions and continue to get highly personalized feedback to the exact issue I am having with understanding the topic. I'm sure that over time, that kind of model will become more deeply integrated with the normal practice of education, but the capability is already there at the high school level for sure. So I think there's, you know, I share your sort of concern about how to continue to teach persuasion and rhetoric, um, and I think we have to think really deeply about how to do that, and it's, it's, it's clear that, like, the answer is not immediately obvious, but I just want to emphasize how inspiring I think these approaches are in other disciplines where, you know, I think it's a huge leveler of the playing field for, for, for students where, um, if it takes somebody a little bit longer to understand something, you know, that's always been fine, but now there's a clear path towards, you know, them being able to get all of the help they need at your fingertip, at your fingertips. And, and I think that will, be huge for just leveling up everyone's understanding. And, and, you know, I think that'll change what, like the kind of work you do in the classroom. If, you know, if, if, if folks are able to use these things outside of class to, you know, gain skills and gain understanding of things, it, it, it opens up a lot of opportunities for how you can more effectively use class time. And, you know, this is far outside my expertise, but it certainly seems like a, a an exciting future for, for education. Well, I'm also thinking about, you know, the computer science program at Stanford, for instance. I remember I took computer science in college, and I would have to go to the office hours and ask people in my class, and this is just a few years ago, you know, ask my TA, what do I do about this? It's not running, right? Now you just sit with your assistant and ask why it's not running. Oh, there's the missing, you know, there's the bug in your code. I think every programmer I know in industry uses approaches like this as part of their daily programming workflow. And it's huge. I mean, I, I, um, you just don't need to Google stuff anymore. I mean, you do. But for a lot of things, um, you can get much better, more helpful answers. Um, so that's very cool. And I'm sure it's going to change the practice of, of programming even more than it already has. There's some crazy demos where, you know, you can just sort of uh, – there, there's there, there's one that's particularly crazy where someone sort of sketches out, like, the equivalent of, like, a back-of-the-napkin drawing of what they want the website to be and how they want it to function. Mm -hmm. And from that image alone, the system generates the architecture and the code to deliver on what is, you know, really generously a back-of-the-napkin sketch. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of future will, I think, change a lot about what it means to be a, 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 a computer programmer. Um, but that's exciting, too, because I think that means that with approaches like this, doing a lot of, you know, maybe low-level tasks, I think it'll free up folks to, to think about other aspects. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
Awesome, Rishi. Well, um, last question is, we talked about When Breath Becomes Air, which is a terrific book. We both, I would, I would say, highly recommend that book for, for students and listeners. But is there a book that you've read recently that has made an impact on you for whatever reason? Yeah. Um, maybe, I can, maybe I can share two. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I recently read um, When We Cease to Understand the World by uh, this author named Benjamin Labatut. Um, it's an interesting book because it's uh, about scientific history. It's sort of about a number of scientists around the turn of the 20th century uh, through the World War II era um, and the, you know, the immense consequences of the scientific discoveries that they were making. Uh, but it's also historical fiction in that the conversations and interactions between these eminent scientists of the time are largely fictionalized. So it's a, it's, a, it's a super interesting sort of, I think the phrase that people use often is genre defying for, for this book, because it is you know kind of confusing as to, as to what exactly it is. Um, but it was a really interesting read, and I think does a really nice job uh, talking about the lives of these scientists while also underscoring um, how unpredictable and divergent the uses of what they were building was. For example, the book starts with uh, Fritz Haber's life, who um, developed a chemical process that was crucial for modern fertilizer, which has saved the billions of lives from famine and hunger, uh, but also was the basis for chemical warfare and the... Uh, poisonous gases of the Nazi regime. So just, you know, the crazy duality of these scientific and technological advancements mm. and sort of uh, putting that up against the lives of the people that generated them and, and, and how it affected their psyche in a somewhat fictionalized way. That's fascinating. Uh, so a super cool book, uh, a, a very confusing to read. You're constantly sort of juggling, was this real or was this fictionalized? Well, I uh, think that's really, I mean, just the idea of that is so fascinating because so many people who created life-changing technologies and tools for us didn't really know that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's dating app that he had just for his friends would turn into this massive company that would change the elections and, you know, alter mental health across the world. And, right, it's just a small project. Oppenheimer as well, the Oppenheimer movie, he didn't really know exactly what he was doing at the time he was working on a scientific project it's changed the entire world for for better and worse so interesting idea yeah i think i think those are those are two great examples and you know as you as you sort of i think the early part of the 20th century was a particularly dense time for innovations like that um you know which were world transforming in ways that both were and weren't anticipated by their inventors and then second book second book i wanted to recommend is called cast by Isabella yes. Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it, it came out, I think, in a very timely, in the summer of 2020, um, you know, I think when a lot of folks were thinking about race in America um, and hopefully continue to do so. Um, and it's just a, a very powerful and deeply researched uh, book into the structural ways in which the United States oppressed of black people and the ways in which some of those structures continue to exist. And it's just a, a, a deeply researched taxonomy of those ways 
And I think the sort of precision with which it's written, in addition to the sort of emotional strength that it pulls on, makes it a really compelling read. Um, awesome. Yeah. Two great books right there. Thank you very much, Rishi, for the recommendations. And thanks for taking the time today to come in. I know you're you know, you're, you're going back to California soon, soon, I assume. And, um, appreciate you just spending time with us today to, to talk a little bit. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for doing this.